Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody, and welcome to In-Depth, presented by the San Antonio Express News. My name is Luis Vasquez, and I'll be your host as we bring in journalists, editorial board members, and columnists to give us an inside perspective into the stories they bring to the Express News each week. Today, I'm joined by my essay food and culture editor, Madeline Mendoza. She joins the show today to talk about her research on the effects of redlining in San Antonio. Welcome to the show, Madeline. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. I Like I told you a little bit off air a little while ago, I just finished reading this extensive piece that you did. Mm-hmm. And the before we get into the piece itself, I want to talk about you being the food and culture editor for my essay and how you got to take it on this, uh, this piece in particular. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting because I moved into this role in August of 2021. So this was a project that preceded it. So I was awarded the grant from Columbia almost a year ago in May. And then it was just something that I was working on in the background. You know, as our editor puts it, I was doing double duty. So I was writing for my essay from eight to five and then going straight into my research after work. And then in August is when I got promoted to food and culture editor. So it was a, a busy year, 2021. Um, so, and, but you know, my past of reporting for my essay, it's touched on a little bit of history and I have gotten into some tough topics, but I think this came as sort of a surprise to a lot of our readers because this isn't what I usually tackle or handle. Um, but what I keep saying is, you know, I love San Antonio. I'm a huge champion of the city, but to better progress and elevate the people who make San Antonio what it is, we have to understand our history and we have to continue fighting and advocating for our minority communities. So it all goes in hand in hand, I see, I think, because, yeah, I may write about taquerias or small mom and pop shop, small mom and pop shops because these are the, the people that have been historically ignored and dismissed. So it's my job as food and culture editor to elevate them through my work. So I see it as going hand in hand still. I, I do too. And it's something that I speak to like with Mike Sutter and the rest of like the Express News taste team. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I like to treat all of their work as I treat other journalists work because uh, just because it's food doesn't mean that it doesn't impact us. Uh, there's our, our money and how we spend it and where we spend it and who we spend it on uh, culturally and or otherwise is important. And mm-hmm. uh your work as a journalist, whether you're writing about restaurants or trees or whatever, or city ordinances, I think it all, it all has merit. And I think it's all very worthy of all that. And I don't think it's as, as, as crazy or as out of step as it would seem. Nobody could write this piece, not knowing San Antonio. I think you need to know San Antonio to be able to write a piece like this to begin with. So let me ask, uh, how do you even begin to tackle a piece of this scope? Where where do you begin? That was my biggest question around this time last year. I 
felt super overwhelmed. And once I got into the thick of it, there were all these different avenues that I could have taken. And it would be remiss of me not to talk about the history before redlining. You can't just say, oh, it started with redlining. So I was deep in the trenches of all this history and all these archives. And I just kept finding little pieces that I wanted to talk about. And I got some direction from Columbia and told them, you know, I don't know where to start. There's so much to say. And they kind of narrowed it down to, well, redlining just stunted the upward mobility for so many generations. And that kind of encompasses everything. That's, you know, housing, education, access, you know, with the pandemic, digital access, access to vaccines, access to healthcare. So I kind of took a step back and tried to figure out how I was going to explain all of this all at once. And also mention, you know, there's still things today that are still affecting these communities like gentrification, um, property taxes, just being out the roof. So to answer your question, I had to at least focus it to the last hundred years. And at least. Yes. And so luckily I was able to connect with some key figures in this fight. You know, they shared their oral histories with me and just opened literally their homes to me. Started with Patty Rodriguez, who is the youngest child or one of the younger children of Demetrio Rodriguez, who was part of the Edgewood Parents Association that took the fight all the way up to the Supreme Court. And she connected with me with so many of so many people from her community, like Diane and Richard Herrera, Manuel Garza, Muriel Campeon, just these invaluable people that I wouldn't have been able to connect with otherwise. And she's also the person that submitted a lot of her family photos that are like the centerpiece of the story. And from then on, I just got the ball rolling. And so I was able to match up some of these archives with these oral histories and they're just super powerful together. And I'm so grateful and so honored that I was able to speak with these, speak with these people because they are living, living history. Um, and so that kind of helped me narrow my focus. I will say I, I got really confused and I had a really big challenge with figuring out the funding of it all, the taxes of it all. That was really difficult, but IDRA, which was, um, founded by Dr. Cardenas, who I also read through his papers, his legacy lives on through his, um, group. And they were able to kind of walk me through some of those issues and walk me through the issues that are happening today, like with the digital divide and everything that happened with the pandemic and what's being done now in the state, as far as securing access for more of these communities. Because I mean, even where I live right past 90, in between 90 and 35, that little corner, our data is terrible. Like if I don't have Wi-Fi, I can't access the internet or it's like dial up speeds. And that's all very much part of the issue. In our time now, this is happening now. Yes. So I tried to create basically a timeline and I had a binder. I still, you know, I still have my binder of information. I'm just my own pages. And the cool thing about the grant being funded through Columbia is that I had access to the entire Columbia library online. So I started the first few months just tackling anything that I could find in there that'd be important to my research. And then the next phase was actually getting out and interviewing these people, getting into the archives. So I just have this binder of information. And at one point, you know, to kind of make things make sense to me, I just made a, a straight up timeline. And something that I've always tried doing as a reporter is sharing a story as if I would want to tell my one of my loved ones, you know, what it, what it would just get to the, the, the root of it all. So that's what I really tried doing with my story. I, you mentioned you had so many interviews and you, you've been working on this for so long, not to get super in the, in the weeds on this, but I'm, I always ask journalists this, like, 
What are those interviews like? I, I'm sure. Do you write notes? Are you voice memoing stuff? And then how do you take that interview and then condense it down to its most essential parts? Uh, and I know that's super granular, but I'd love to hear your process on that. Yeah. So I was just using voice memos, my laptops on my laptop, um, taking notes to but I actually use this really cool software called Otter. Otter. I love it. Otter AI. <laughs> yes. So although I would sit there and listen and transcribe, I had those notes ready. So just to make sure. And sometimes Otter picks up words better than what, you know, I better than my ears do. So it was nice to have that backup reinforcement. So, you know, these interviews were an hour and a half, sometimes two hours long. So that was part of the process, you know. After work, after my eight to five, I would just go sit down in a coffee shop and just, you know, listen to the entire interview again and jot down manually like points and times in the interview. And Nayan and Richard Herrera, they have a whole back room of their house that's just dedicated to the work that they're still still doing. These people are still working towards equality. Um, They're still advocates and they still have like a room full of their newspaper clippings and photos and just really awesome stuff that I was able to see firsthand. And these two specifically, I felt like I was just speaking to somebody in my family. You know, it was Miha, all these things, and just so welcoming, so kind. And it was a day that San Antonio had really bad weather. And so I kind of just stayed there with them and and chatted with them for hours and hours and hours and enjoyed every minute of it. So super appreciative to them. The story wouldn't be what it is without them or Patty or Manuel and Mario. That's awesome. And so th- there's this focus on, on the flood in, in your, in your story. Mm-hmm. When you're researching this, being a San Antonio native and you're working at home, this was last year where we were still working from home. Mm-hmm. Uh, even just me reading it and reading about the children that the two week old that passed away in the flood, mm-hmm. that was like upsetting to me. Mm-hmm. And I know you were looking through pictures and stuff. How did you manage to separate that work-life balance, but still being at home and not being really to get away, being able to get away from work? I did it. Um, this has been one of the most emotionally taxing stories I've ever touched. I kind of get teary-eyed even thinking about it right now. But that night in particular, that section of the of the reporting, especially, it broke me. Um there were nights I remember I would stay up to like 3 a.m. Just I would lose track of time just reading through all of this reporting. And, you know, Express News has had a conversation on how we've handled topics in the past, even long before any of us were born or even existed. But it's just heartbreaking to read that everything in the papers was covered society wise. Tea parties, vacations in Aspen, vacations to New York. There was no warning for these people that were going to be affected that this huge storm was coming. And then it comes and it gets maybe two days worth of coverage. And then it's a city triumphant by the end of the week. But yet all of these communities, all of these Latino surnames are suffering. They're living in tents. They're dead. You know, people were getting ripped right out of their, right off their mattresses, being found, their bodies are being found in trees just up the street from where I live now. And it's haunted. You know, now I pass by these streets and I, it, it gives me chills to think about. And so these were nights where I, I had to pull myself away and I would just cry and cry and cry in the shower because most, yes, because it's painful to read, but then how did we forget this history? 
you know, you go ride the river barges downtown and they touch on it, but it makes it seem as if it was just downtown and all of these buildings and millions and, and damages. But no, more than that, that lives were lost. And I think it's what really struck me was that Manuel Garza tells me, who Manuel Garza was part of the Edgewood walkouts, he tells me that a whole part of his family was lost in the flood. So his whole generation, his whole lineage has been impacted by these racist policies. And then you think about a few years later, yes, San Antonio builds a dam. Who's protected by that dam? Not Mexicans, not Black people, because they couldn't even live near it. That's almost part. So it's very frustrating. It's very infuriating. And I think one of the most infuriating parts for me uh, reading that, and I'm glad you brought it up, the generational aspect is, uh, is this is a conversation. I think I've done 200 episodes of this show uh, through the pandemic. And one thing that kept coming up over and over was uh, I'm Hispanic. Uh, so I'm, I'm from Mexico. I'm from San Luis Potosí, Mexico. Mm-hmm. And uh, we live in generational homes where there's a grandma, there's, there's, several generations of families living together and the pandemic highlighted that once again, when generations of family were devastated because they were all living in the same home and we didn't have adequate testing and we didn't have, and some areas had more testing centers and stuff like that. It it felt like the, as I was reading this from a hundred years ago, it felt like everything had almost repeated itself in a way. Right. Right. And that, that really resonated with me. Yeah, it was, it's painful. And then on top of that, you know, this small sense of home that these communities had was just washed away. So they're set back even further. And then, you know, the racial covenants come in and everybody that is not white is pushed to the outskirts for colonial style housing, you know, so they're already in in bad shape. And then they're pushed to this sub, substandard housing. I read somewhere that Charles Cottrell, who I interviewed, had said that when the like the, the the city policy or the city standard for housing came into effect in the 60s, I believe it could be wrong, 50s or 60s, that most of the homes that these communities were living in were below the were below standard. They didn't meet they didn't meet the quality. Um, you know, they didn't have basic um, basic necessities like running water, electricity. They would get water delivered by a mule and then a tractor. So you know, and my biggest thing is San Antonio weighs so heavy on Mexican culture. There's Fiesta. There's literally Fiesta, Texas. There's all the Mexican restaurants. You look at the the tourism website, what is promoted the most? Latino culture. But yet there has been such a lack of investment in its people. And that's just really, really upsetting. Well, uh, as always, this the there's going to be a link to your story. I didn't want to get too deep into it because I want everyone to go and read it. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's it's in depth. It's, it's really, really, really good, really gripping. And you know what, we could talk real quick, uh, before you, you started off the, the article with an anecdote, uh, about your mother. Would you like to share that right now? Yeah. So my brother and I are the first people to graduate from college on both sides of my family, maternal and paternal. And that's always been a sense of pride and, you know, we made it out, we did it, but it shouldn't have ever been that way. Um, my mom broke that cycle of, for us. And she started it all with, she was a single mom. She started it all with, you know, there was really no choice of whether we were going to be successful or not. We were going to be successful. She sacrificed so much for us and she never let us forget it. 
And the biggest thing was that sheet of paper that she would bring out. Sometimes it was in a nurturing way. Sometimes it was because we were being scolded because we weren't doing what we're supposed to be doing. But she would start off with this sheet of paper, just any sheet of paper she could find. It could be a paper towel or a printer piece of paper. But she would she would like split it down the middle. And that meant like the affluent and the not affluent. And then she would divide it into smaller and smaller chunks. And, you know, these people you know, aren't going to, they're going to become pregnant at an early age. They're going to go to prison. They're going to get wrapped up with drugs and alcohol. And then this tiniest, the tiniest little shred, as big as a penny maybe, would be the people who were going to make it. And she would tell us that was going to be us. And I just thought that's how everybody was raised. I thought that's what every, I, th- I didn't know. I thought that was just how it was up until my 20s. And now the statistics that have come out recently in the, I think it was the community survey, kind of just reaffirm whatever she was saying that, you know, Latinos make up the biggest population in San Antonio, but we have the second worst rate of people 25 or older with a bachelor's degree. And that's just a bachelor's degree. And the other, the only demographic that's worse off than us is just other. So she kind of was explaining that even early on, but I don't think she really understood the, the fuller scope of what was happening or why it was like that. But that was kind of just something that I always remembered that I was going to be that small shred of paper. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's, yeah. I felt like that was an important part to start with. That, that was a beautiful story. Well, Maddie, uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for continuing to promote this story. 